You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. this morning. Excited to be up here preaching for you all. My name is James Brown. For those of you who don't know me, primarily responsible for the song of the church, one of the pastor elders here. This morning I'll be stepping into the pulpit in Jamie's absence, so I'm trying to do the best I can. <laughs> We've been in the book of Galatians, for those of you guys who are just joining us in a sermon series called No Other Gospel. This has been over the past several weeks. We've been in this book and will take us all the way through November up to Advent catch you guys up for those you haven't been here, briefly summarize where we've been. Galatians is not like some of Paul's other epistles, I find, which cover a wide variety of topics. Here, Paul is singularly focused on one primary topic, namely the one and true gospel of Jesus Christ. He begins his letter in a fairly casual manner with, hey, hope you guys are doing well, hope things are going all right, and also, uh, you know, are you insane? Uh, What's going on down there? He says it this way, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul then proceeds to define the nature of this false gospel as Jesus plus something else that is required for salvation. In this case, the Jesus plus uh, adheres to certain religious customs and traditions of Mosaic law, such as circumcision And as we shall see in today's passage, a strict observance of special Jewish holidays and celebrations. Paul thoroughly refutes from every possible angle those who would question his ability to speak on such matters. He begins by defending his apostolic authority, talks about his former life in Judaism. Paul describes himself as the Pharisee of Pharisees, who kept the letter of the law down to every last detail. And he was called by Jesus Christ himself on the road to Damascus, delivered this one and true gospel by Jesus, not a gospel that man could have come up with, but only God, a gospel that says that we are not justified by our works, but we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And all the while, Paul draws from his Old Testament knowledge to support his position, arguing that we are children of the promise children of an everlasting covenant that God made with Abraham and whom all nations shall be blessed, which is good news for us Gentiles. And this covenant, Paul goes on to describe, it precedes the law of Moses, which was never meant to save, but rather to expose our sinfulness and demonstrate our deep need for a savior, that is Jesus Christ, who has come and who has fulfilled all the law's commands, what we just sang. Therefore, those who are in Christ, he says, are all Abraham's offspring. He says in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christ has redeemed those under the law, no longer slaves, but sons and heirs through God. Seems to be a pretty convincing argument that Paul has laid out already, but he's not done yet. He's going to keep going, and we're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 8, where we'll be this morning, with Paul continuing to implore the church in Galatia to walk in the freedom that they have been offered through Christ, 
demonstrating how works-based righteousness is really no different than worldly licentiousness and how the outworking of this false gospel brings about strife in our relationship and then ultimately division within the church. I'm going to go ahead and pray for our time in God's word this morning, and then we're going to jump into it. Holy Father, I thank you for the sweet reminder this morning as we were singing. Always a blessing to be out in the congregation um, singing these songs that I sing often, but for some reason they hit you differently out there. Or the, the sweetness of the grace that is offered in Jesus Christ, the perfect grace that it is. Lord, help us to realize this morning that this is a message for us. This is not something that happened way back when, some uh, remote and antiquated thing. It has real life applications for where we are right now and how we treat you and how we treat your gospel. Also help us to see that this is not uh, just a gospel for a message for somebody else. (laughs) It's been tempting for me to look at it that way. It's like, I don't do these things here. I know these other people that need to hear this. Lord, this is a message for me. I am prone to wander and prone to add to your already perfect gospel message or to, uh, to validate myself, to justify myself by my works as if I could add anything to it. Jesus, as you hung on a cross, you said, it was finished. Help us this morning to remember that and to walk in the sweetness of freedom that is offered here. Jesus, is it only even possible that we can pray such a thing in your name? We submit to you as our Lord and our Savior this morning. Amen. All right. Um, if you guys haven't already done so, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Galatians 4.8. That's where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in one of the seats in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one home with you guys when you leave as our gift to you. We'll also have the verses up on the screen behind me as we go through it. I'm just going to go ahead and dive right into it. Picking up in verse 8, formerly, Paul writes, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Paul is referring to here, the, the Galatians' life that they lived pre-conversion, right? Well, there was a Jewish influence in the Galatian churches. They were compri- comprised mostly of former pagans. These pagans sacrificed to pagan gods. They engaged in the kinds of immoral behaviors that typical of pagan worship. And Paul calls this enslavement. Tim Keller, in his commentary, elaborates on this idea. He writes, if we put our greatest hope in gaining wealth, for example... We will be controlled and enslaved. We will be completely under the power of money. If we are not doing well at gaining it, we will be devastated. And even if we do get enough, we will be disappointed and seek more. If we treat things that are not God's as though they are, we become slaves to them spiritually. To put it another way, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. 2 Peter 2.19. This was the state of the Galatian church prior to receiving this true gospel message, they worshiped and they sacrificed to idols that promised things that they could not deliver on, false gods that are actually no gods at all. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10.20, Paul refers to these false gods as demons. They're not merely benign figments of imagination, but these are real and destructive forces. He then goes on to write in verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, 
or rather to be known by God. And it's worth pausing there. I'm cutting him off mid-thought, but I think there's a lot to explore in just that little section. But Paul makes this important distinction between knowing God and being known by God. The word here for knowing that he uses is gnosis in the Greek. It can mean like something akin to uh, cognitive awareness. I know, for instance, that you guys all exist. I even know most of you by name. A lot of you have had some pretty meaningful conversations with. So you can say on some level that we know each other. And there's another word, uh, another meaning for this word gnosis, which is how I think Paul is using it here. It refers to the deepest, most personal knowledge between people. It's uh, the kind of intimate knowledge expressed in Genesis 4.1, for instance, which says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. This goes beyond merely acknowledging that someone exists, right? I didn't just regard my wife, and then she's like, hey, I'm pregnant. You know? <laughs> it's, a, it's a little more involved than that. We're not talking about just cognitive awareness here, unless that's what the kids are calling it these days. I wouldn't know. And Paul is talking about something deeper, something more personal, something more intimate. And God wants all of us, right? Not just part of us. He has sacrificed his only begotten son so that we can have this kind of intimacy with him. And Paul is saying that it doesn't matter so much that we know God, but more importantly, that he knows who we are. And our hearts are fickle, right? We misinterpret who he is all the time. We don't understand him at times. Sometimes we act as if we don't know him all or at all or even desire a close relationship with him. If, on the other hand, you are in Christ, then you are known by God, not just cognitively because he made you and he knows who everyone is, but salvifically. You belong to him and your status as a son or a daughter will not change. He will not suddenly decide, you are not my child. He is not fickle or capricious as we are. His love is steadfast and it is immovable and his love endures forever. It's good news, right? It doesn't depend on us. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. He made this possible. Right? He made a way where there was no way, not because of us, but because of him. And I feel the need to add this to the conversation as well, because Jesus delivers this sobering message in Matthew 7 to sort of round things out. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I'm sure everyone in this room has heard of God in the cognitive sense of the word. Maybe there's someone amongst you who doesn't know him in this salvific way that's being described here. Do you know him deeply and intimately? And more importantly, does he know you? The good news is that this kind of profound fellowship is possible with the Father through Jesus Christ. Maybe that arouses something within your slumbering soul this morning. If so, find me and let's talk about it. I love having those kind of conversations. This is not just a show that we put on for our own enjoyment or entertainment. It's not that entertaining, to be honest. You guys can find a lot better things to do with your time on a Sunday morning. But this is a supernatural gathering where the Holy Spirit is working in and through us, through the power of God's word, to bring dead people back to life. 
which is wild when you think about it. There's your Halloween tie-in there. Continuing on in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Again, Paul comes back to that phrase, the elementary principles of the world. Uh, Jamie touched on this last week when he preached, and uh, I approved of his take on it, so I'm going to use it as well. You know it's, it's good if I approve of it. Um, by the phrase, elementary principles of the world, Paul is most likely referring to the religious ceremonial practices of both Jews and Gentiles. And for the Jews, the ceremonial practice of the law of Moses, and then for the Gentiles, ceremonial practice of pagan ritual. But this is interesting in light of what Paul is saying here. He's asking, how can you turn back to these weak and worthless principles? And by the context of the rest of the letter, we can determine that he's not talking about the Gentile believers going back to worshiping their pagan gods again and you know, living in that licentious irreligion, but instead running to what feels like a safe bet, though it isn't, a security blanket of legalism and religion. So by making this comparison, Paul is saying that, in essence, there is no difference between the two. Both are false religions, both are forms of idolatry, and both ultimately result in our enslavement. They offer no hope of salvation. They can do nothing for you. And this is why Paul is beside himself here. He's saying, you know and are known by God, meaning you are loved beyond all measure, adopted into this family, approved of completely, and not because of anything you have done, but because what Christ has done. Why then do you, as he goes on to say in verse 10, observe days and months and seasons and years? I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. As I mentioned earlier, the days and months and seasons and years Paul refers to here would include special dates on the Jewish calendar, such as the Day of Atonement, for instance, the Feast of Weeks, the Year of Jubilee. These are shadows of the things that were to come. Now, these are things that were meant to point to Christ, but Christ has already fulfilled them. The Day of Atonement pointing to our you know, sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, because you could celebrate it, but there's not really a need, and certainly it doesn't make any sense to celebrate it as some means of earning our salvation. So this begs the question, why do we turn to these things, and how exactly do they enslave us? Because these two things that Paul's talking about, that he lumps into this same category, seem to be on opposite ends of the spectrum, right? You have worldly licentiousness, and you have legalism, and yet at the root of it all seems to be this lie that tells us we need to save ourselves. And so we grasp for something tangible, something that we can hold on to. We say, my hands made this idol out of gold that I brought. We see it, and we can touch it, and it's quantifiable in a sense. And we even call it a God and ascribe to it attributes of his character as the Israelites did, saying, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, referring to the golden calf. It's sinister stuff. But then it gets a little tricky, doesn't it? Because a lot of times we're doing what we think we're supposed to be doing. These are good things that we're engaging in. It's good to read your Bible every day. It's good to come to church on Sundays. It's good to be actively involved in different ministry areas. Then these things quickly shift into something performative as a means of earning our salvation. And rather than engaging in them because we are known by God and loved by God, we do it to earn God's favor or the approval of others. 
And then we can quickly become irritated or resentful or prideful and arrogant when we perceive that others aren't doing as much as we are or otherwise don't acknowledge all that we're doing. Makes me think of the parable of the prodigal son. Most of you are probably familiar with this story. I've also heard it referred to as the story of the two lost sons. In the story, one son demands his father's inheritance and leaves home and goes and squanders it all on loose living. And you have the other son who is moral and at least outwardly obedient, but neither really desires a close relationship with the father. Right? They are far from him. And at the end of the story, the prodigal son returns, having come to the end of himself, and in humility, he comes home and asks for his father's forgiveness. Overjoyed, the father welcomes him back with open arms and throws him a party. And the other son is incensed, and he criticizes the father, and he refuses to enter into the party himself. At the end, he does not perceive his desperate need to repent and to ask for forgiveness, because he has done everything right such as the subtle, pernicious nature of religious legalism. It's harder to see because we think we're doing the right things. Like this quote from David Platt and Tony Morita in their commentary. It says, if your Christianity consists of slavery to religion in order to make yourself right before God, then it's just as if you're giving yourself to the pagan religions of the world. Moving on to verses 12 through 16. If these first four verses are meant to draw a sharp contrast between the false gospels of legalism and paganism and then the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And this next section is meant to demonstrate the practical outworking of these things in our lives. as a contrasting gospel message in, in the way that we relate to one another. Starting in verse 12, Paul continues, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So here Paul gives a little bit of the backstory surrounding his connection to these churches in Galatia. And he approaches it, I think, in a very endearing sort of way. Brothers, he says, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also became as you are. What does he mean by become as I am? I think Paul means be liberated as I am liberated. Paul has pursued righteousness by the law, but to no avail. And it was a futile effort, I think he would say. It was weak and it was worthless. And he's saying, walk in the sweetness of freedom as I do. It's a whole lot better over here. And he says these words, not as a stranger from the outside looking in, but as a friend. You ever have someone who doesn't really know you or your situation that well try to give you some like unsolicited advice or instruction on the thing? I don't know about you, but I don't generally receive this very well. Uh, however, someone who takes the time to get to know me and sees me, who, know, uh, who I know loves me and has compassion for me, I'm willing to open up a little bit more to this person, to hear what they have to say as they speak into my life. I think this is what Paul is talking about here. This is how he's approaching the Galatians. He knows them as family, right? He calls them brothers, says, I became as you are. This is a very missional thing, by the way. 
He doesn't enter into their culture and demand that they adapt all of his cultural practices. He probably ate what they ate, engaged in activities as they did. Not to say that he adopted everything that they did, right? He obviously didn't engage in their pagan ritual practices. But anything that isn't categorically sin, he embraced for the sake of gospel culture. And Paul truly lived out this idea of becoming all things to all people. And it, we should follow his example, I think. We should do the same thing. I'd say, you know, this is my um, exhortation for this morning, but get to know someone that you don't know in this church and invite them out to eat somewhere they like, try something new, and uh, ask them where they came from, you know, what their family's like, what movies they like. Play a board game with them. If you want to get to know someone, I always find that playing a board game is the best way to truly find out who a person is. A different side of them comes out. You could know, ask my wife. Um, <laughs> yeah, one of the first things that, uh, she, our first encounters with each other, really, where we interacted with each other. We were 17, and it was uh, over at a friend's house, and it was her and her best friend, and me and my best friend, and we were playing Taboo. You guys ever play this game? And up to that point, I think she thought I was fairly aloof, you know, kind of too cool for school. It was my style. Um, and little did she know that I take winning very seriously. And uh, they were very good at this game, um, almost telepathically good. And like, you know, her friend would be like, oh, there's this person. She's like, Ted Danson. It's like, there's this one time, oh, Disneyland. It was like, your favorite, George W. Bush. It was like all these things that just kind of went like on and on. Like, what is, what is happening here? Meanwhile, I think we'd get like one around if we were lucky. And so at one point, we're playing, and uh, it's their turn, and she's kind of stalled and trying to think of the right word to describe the clue that she wants to give. And they take the timer, and they put it over on its side, as if like they needed extra time. And then I <laughs> called them out. I'm like, what is the happening here, you know? So I, I got really upset, and they uh, thought it was very humorous. So all I'm saying is... Go play a board game with each other. I think this is what the church does, right? We get to know one another and hopefully come to love one another in our various expressions of beauty and the way that God designed us all. I say ideally, right? Because it doesn't always work out that way. Our sinfulness gets in the way of this gospel community. But this is what was happening in Galatia, at least at first. Paul goes on to talk about how he came to Galatia in the first place. It doesn't appear that this was part of Paul's original plan, but it was God's plan to bring him here. He says it was because of a bodily ailment. Paul doesn't specify what this is exactly. There's a lot of speculation about what it could have been. To hear Paul rattle off his highlight reel of hardships in 2 Corinthians 11, he's beaten, shipwrecked, imprisoned several times. His body, as R.C. Sproul put it, must have been one mass of scar tissue at this point. Whatever it was, this particular thorn in the flesh, Paul could say that God orchestrates such events for good, which is what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. And God uses Paul's infirmity to preach the gospel to the Galatians. And you might add, to teach them also what the gospel looks like. Paul reminds them of how they received him though he may have been treated as a burden to them. Paul uses the word trial here. Those with physical needs require more attention from us, right? But here we see the gospel in action. I think Jesus' words in Matthew 25 encapsulate this idea when he says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. 
They received Paul, as he says, as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself, sacrificially loving and caring for him. And Paul even goes so far as to say, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me, which is sweet, I guess, um, if, if a little intense. Any of you gouge out your eyes and give them to me? I don't think so. <laughs> I always appreciate Paul's use of graphic imagery to drive home a point, though. I think Paul is trying to illustrate this sharp contrast between a life that's affected by the gospel and then what happens to our relationships when we veer off the gospel path. What has become of your blessedness, Paul says? Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Once a beloved brother and friend, and now an enemy that you shun and disparage for the sake of this false gospel. He says, do you see how this looks? You see what this is doing to you guys? I don't think there's anything more tragic than this, having uh, been the product of several divorces or even to see people in the life of the church, just this uh, dissolution of relationships. Not that people can't disagree or even strongly at times, but that two parties who previously were close would find themselves unable or unwilling to reconcile their differences. It breaks my heart. There's a movie watched recently, The Banshees of Nisharan, which I, I thought was really great, with Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, explores this idea of what happens when one friend tells another friend that I don't want to be friends with you anymore. It's the premise of the movie, which seems a little overly simplistic, but I found it really fascinating and also devastating to watch. The whole thing is set against the backdrop of the Irish Civil War, the very poignant and profound look at what Paul is talking about here, how people can go from being the closest friends to being enemies when we lose sight of what matters most. I experienced a lot of this, unfortunately, during the pandemic, what it made me think of, and wished we had gone through this as a church during that time. I watched a lot of secondary issues become primary issues, who someone voted for, whether or not you were vaccinated, whether you were pro or anti-mask. These mattered more than the one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one God and Father of us all that we all claim to believe. It was less about what was being confessed in terms of gospel doctrine, though there were things that were being said that I found troubling, but it was more about what was being practiced, the sitting at different lunch tables, so to speak, what Paul publicly rebukes Peter for when he stops eating with the uncircumcised Gentiles. I know there were a lot of people that navigated that really well. It was encouraging to see. Though they disagree, they were trying to honor these people and love thy neighbor as themselves. It also brought a lot of division and strife within the church, similar to what I think we're looking at here in Galatia. I also saw a lot of this, what Paul goes on to describe in verse 17. It says, they make much of you for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you make much of them. They, in this instance, will be referring to the ones that are spreading this false gospel. And this is what happens, right? When we have a particular view on something, it's not enough that we hold our opinions to ourselves. We need others to appreciate our position as much as we do, right? Maybe you guys can relate to this. Sometimes I'll come to my wife with uh, some gripe or complaint about a certain individual. And I'm not talking about something that I need to process, but, you know, for the sake of moving through it towards reconcilement. Like, those are okay. I'm talking about venting just to vent. I want to tell her all the ways this person is wrong, 
you know, how annoying they are. And at the end of it, all I want her to say is, James, you're right. Um, James, that person is as horrible as you're describing them. And James, you're a saint for putting up with them. <laughs> but when my wife takes on this more conciliatory approach or suggests that maybe I'm not seeing things correctly, uh, I don't always really want to hear this. Anyone else do that? Am I the only one? Here? Right, we're evil, <laughs> basically. Our hearts are sinful beyond what we understand. And we love to be made much of, whether for good or for bad reasons. This is, I think, what's happening here in Galatia. The ones touting this false gospel are puffing up and flattering and cajoling the other people to win them over to their side. Why, Paul says, because they want to shut you out. They want to alienate you. They want to divide you. So that, he says, you might make much of them so that they receive all the power and praise, right? Which should be an immediate red flag, but the flattery seems to have worked in this case. And Paul goes on to write in verse 18, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. So there are appropriate times to give one another praise, like when some, someone does something good, for instance. It should be a church that encourages and builds one, one, one another up in this way. I think we should also be discerning when it comes to those who would divide or put down or gossip about others to win us to their side, especially about secondary issues. I hope that we would be a church that would say, uh, no thanks, I'm good. You know, shut that stuff down right away. Moving on to verses 19 through 20, and I'm gonna back up a little bit here to catch the whole flow of, of this thought. Paul writes, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed by you. I have to see a little bit more of Paul's heart here as it pertains to the Galatians. He refers to them as his little children, demonstrating this strong familial bond between them. Church is really wonderfully unique in this way, or can be. Now, these are people that you can come to with uh, your problems that you could be vulnerable with, who walk with you through some of the darkest times in your life, and who oftentimes, as this is the case for me, know you better than your own biological family knows you. Fortunately, this also opens the door to some of the deepest hurts that we experience, something that Paul certainly knows a lot about. He doesn't allow this, though, to overshadow what he truly desires for the Galatians, which is to see Christ formed in them. My wife has told me that uh, before she really enjoyed being pregnant. I know this isn't the case for all women. I understand pregnancies can be very difficult, but for my wife, she seemed to be very, very at peace with the idea. I would venture to say, though, even though she enjoyed it, that she didn't wish that the gestation period could be any longer than it was. She had this desire, not just to be over the physical discomfort, I'm sure, but to meet this human being that was growing inside her, you know, whoever they are. See the glory and wonder of this new baby made in the image of God, which is one of the best things in the world. I think this is what Paul is expressing here, a desire to see the Galatians grow and mature in their faith, to become what they've been intended to become to be a fully formed human beings in the image of Christ. He ends this passage with a little bit of a lament, wishing that he could be present with them so that he could change his tone 
This is part of the reason why I send voice texts, by the way. For any of you who have had any text conversations with me, I love these things. You'll send me a one-word text, and I'll send you a 10-minute long voice message, which I know everyone really appreciates. <laughs> but I just can't say uh, yes, no exclamation points, no happy face. What does that mean? You, know, you feel like someone's really mad at me. So I want to convey tone in these. Paul doesn't have voice messages, but uh, he wishes that he could be there with them and, uh, so that he could I'd probably soothe them, probably embrace them, probably speak in more favorable tones. And even in that, I think we see Paul's heart here, what he refers to elsewhere as a burden for the churches. This is also, by the way, the heart of every minister who earnestly seeks to shepherd his flock. But more than just seeing the heart of Paul, I think we see the heart of God in this. R.C. Sproul speaks to this idea in his commentary, writing, thanks to our redemption in Christ, the Lord himself speaks to us not in anger, but in tenderness because we are his. Our God is a loving father who desires good things for us, who disciplines us because he loves us, who is gracious and merciful towards us, and who, unlike Paul, or any other pastor for that matter, can be ever-present in the midst of these situations. In tenderness, he calls us. In tenderness, he invites us to be a part of something better. In tenderness, he says that we are his children. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he wants to transform us into the likeness of his son. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.